And please turn in your copy of God's Holy Word to the book of Hebrews, the fourth chapter, Hebrews 4. We are going to continue our exposition of the book of Hebrews, and we find ourselves in verses 14 through 16 this afternoon. Um, As we continue our exposition, though, to regain the context, I'd like to begin our reading at uh, verse 12, so that we may remember what we heard last Lord's Day. So Hebrews 4, we'll pick up our reading at verses at verse 12, but our sermon will consider verses 14 through 16. Well, trusting you're there in your copy of God's holy word, let us now hear from the word of God. Hebrews 4, verse 12. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched, With the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray for the preaching. O holy God, we come to your word now, and we do see it as that great two-edged sword that can discern the thoughts and intents of our hearts. And as the word is preached, Father, the minister requires your help to preach the word in such a way that it would pierce us. And this is not a piercing that is done by the man's persuasion. This is not done by the man's intellect or wisdom, but really by the spirit of the Lord. And so we ask, Father, that the spirit of the Lord would wield the word of God as a sword, that it would cut us in the heart, And then it would also drive us to Jesus Christ. Help the minister preach in a manner worthy of this and give him the spirit to enable him to do it. And we pray as well for the ears that will hear that they would also have the spirit of the Lord opening up their hearts now to the message of the gospel. Help us all to receive Christ, Father. And so we pray that you'd help me preach the gospel now, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Well, in the prior verses, you have heard that the word of God exposes us as that great two-edged sword, that it penetrates the hardness of our heart to expose our sinfulness. It shows us how the Lord sees us, that we are all naked and exposed before his eyes, that all of our sinfulness is laid bare before him in plain sight. We cannot hide from God. And that on the basis of this word, God will judge all men one day. Judging, as we heard from the apostle, every secret in every man's heart will be exposed. And that is a frightening thing for sinners like us to know that that is the case, friends. And so we praise God that not a verse goes by before the Lord shows us the remedy That when we are pierced by the word of God, when we need mercy to cover our sinfulness and our uncleanness, God has given us the Lord Jesus Christ to be our high priest. And in this text, we find 
our great high priest given by God to freely give sinners mercy and grace in our time of need. That in spite of our great sinfulness and our woeful uncleanness, the text says, not only is there a great high priest, but you are not to fear going to him in your time of need. Instead, he draws you to himself, telling you he understands your weakness and infirmities, that he is touched with the feeling of your infirmities and has compassion on us, that he knows that we are weak in soul and body and we need grace from God. And he knows the power of sin against the human soul, though, of course, Jesus Christ remains sinless. But he encourages you that he knows And so he encourages you to flee to Christ, your great high priest, whenever you need mercy to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And whenever you need grace to persevere and run the race well. And so with that, to introduce the thought and the theme of our text, our theme is Christ's humanity invites you to seek mercy from heaven's throne of grace in your time of need. Christ's humanity invites you to seek mercy from heaven's throne of grace in your time of need. And we'll consider that theme under two heads this afternoon. First is to consider that Christ is a heavenly high priest. And second, that Christ is a very human high priest as well, as the God-man. So first, a heavenly high priest. Verse 14 says, Seeing then we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Jesus is called something peculiar and particular here, our great high priest. I'll develop that out a bit later. But Jesus as our high priest is a continual theme in the book of Hebrews, as you might know. Uh, The discourse that's begun here, and we've considered this as well a little earlier, but this discourse will continue into the middle of chapter 5. And most chapters from now on will consider Christ as high priest as well. And so before we consider Christ as our great high priest, we must understand and know the function of the high priest of the Old Testament to better understand his work for us as our high priest. Boys and girls, you might remember that the very first high priest was Aaron, Moses' brother. You remember that. He was a Levite. And what was his work? God explained it. Once a year, he was to enter the most holy place, to make atonement for the sins of God's people. Exodus 30, verse 10. And Aaron shall make an atonement upon the horns of it once in a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonements. Once in the year shall he make atonement upon it throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. So the high priest alone, only the high priest could enter the most holy place behind the veil in the temple, to come into the very presence of God as the glory of God came into it. Leviticus 16, 2 through 3. And the Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron not to enter freely. You see that? And there's a, a restriction here. Not to enter freely into the most holy place behind the veil in front of the mercy seat on the ark, or else he will die, because I appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Thus shall Aaron come into the holy place, with a young, young bullock for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. And as that text continues, you recall that Aaron had to make atonement for himself first 
because Aaron and all the other earthly high priests among men were sinners. And before they could meet with God, right, their own sins had to be purged. But fundamentally, their function was to intercede with God to atone for his people's sins, to bring a bloody sacrifice to God as an atonement to cover their people, uh, the people of God. Of course, later on in Hebrews, you will hear this, and boys and girls, you might have memorized this, the blood of bulls and goats did not actually take away sins, but were signs pointing to the Lamb of God that was slain before the foundation of the world, Jesus Christ, who took on the sins of God's people. But not only did he go into the most holy place to offer a uh, bloody sacrifice, but day and night uh, he was to offer incense in the temple uh, uh, morning and evening. That's in Exodus 37 through 8. And what does incense in the Bible signify? Incense signifies the prayers of the saints. And so he was praying and interceding for the people of God daily as well. So this two works of atonement and intercession with God through prayer are the works of the high priest. We'll consider more of that work as Hebrews unfolds. But fundamentally, and this is where we have to come back to this text and be anchored, fundamentally God ordained the work of high priests as a ministry of grace. It's a ministry of grace. Which is why, again, and so many people will confuse us on this point, the law of Moses was never a covenant of works, but it is a covenant of grace. God ordained mercy and grace through the priesthood's ministry. That there would be peace between God and man when man sinned. That's grace. That's mercy, friends. Just consider, and we sometimes don't think about it, but you remember the benediction that we receive in the mornings typically from Numbers chapter 6. This is the ironic blessing, and it testifies to the work of the high priest, doesn't it? What, what, what do we hear? What do we receive every Lord's Day? The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be what? Gracious to thee, unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. This is the work of the high priest, to bring uh, peace between God and man. In a way, the benediction as the conclusion there of the high priest's work sums up his office to bless us and give us grace and peace. And what do you know also? You know, there are so many signs of the heart of God in the priesthood that we, we often read through too quickly in the Old Testament. We don't pay attention to what God has to say. And do you remember what the heart of the high priest in his service to God was meant to be? On his breastplate, he was to carry the names of the children of Israel into the holy place close to his heart, Exodus twenty-eight twenty-nine, to demonstrate that the high priest must not just do his work, but he must do his work out of love for his people, bearing them in the most holy place for God. And this is all, then you see, meant to point us to Jesus Christ, because we see that this is the work of Christ, ultimately. And as the Hebrews were tempted to return to these old temple priests, our text, what it is revealing now, is that these old priests were just a pale reflection, a shadow of the great high priest, Jesus Christ who surpasses the greatest of the high priests of the Old Testament economy. And in this verse, as now we come into this verse proper, there are two reasons for the superiority of our great high priests that are given. One, who he is. And second, the location of his ministry. So first, who he is. 
The identity of our high priest seals his worth to not just be called our high priest, but our great high priest, as the text says. There is an adjective peculiar to the priesthood of Jesus Christ. He is great. He is the great high priest. And that title is only ever used for Jesus Christ in the Bible. No one else can have it when it comes to the work of high priest. And what is the identity here of the one who takes the office of great high priest? He is called here Jesus, the Son of God. Son of God. You know this, boys and girls. This is a title of his divinity. This great high priest is not merely a man then. Not even, you know, as we consider Christ's humanity, not even merely a sinless man, unlike the Old Testament sinful high priests. But our great high priest is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. And as the Hebrews were tempted to return to the old economy that passed away, the Spirit is pressing them to see just how profoundly superior the new is. That we have the ministry of the Son of God, to expunge our sin, and to plead for us. In Romans 8, what did the apostle ask? If God is for us, who can be against us? And so, beloved child of God, if the Son of God bears you upon the breastplate of his heart and intercedes for you, how could we who believe ever be forgotten? How could we ever be lost? Do you remember the lament of the people in Isaiah 49? But Zion, had, uh, but Zion said, this is the charge of the people of God, which was untrue. The Lord hath forsaken me, and my Lord hath forgotten me. What was the Lord's assurance? You heard it a couple weeks ago. Can a woman forget her sucking child that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget, yet will I not forget thee. And he adds perhaps one of the most famous verses in the Bible right away. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Isaiah 49, 16. You see, as our high priest, the Son of God has us engraved upon the palms of his hands, so to speak, that he never forgets us as he does his work in heaven's throne. We are ever near to him. You saw that this morning in Luke 7. You know, his thoughts as divine, are, are full of us. And he intercedes for us constantly, not yearly as the old priests, not even twice a day as the old priests, but moment by moment by moment as our great high priest. For the Son of God is infinite and omnipotent, and not an instant goes by where all the billions or trillions or however many number of elect there are, are not upon his mind with perfect knowledge of them knowledge of their sins, and knowledge of their need for mercy and grace. That is an extraordinary thing when you know that your high priest is God the Son. That's why Paul asks elsewhere, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again. Who what? Is even at the right hand of God who also maketh intercession for us. Romans 8, 33-34. Again, this, these truths are all knit together. If God is for us, who can be against us, beloved? The Hebrews needed to hear that and see it. If God intercedes for us in Christ, how can we ever be lost? 
If God must be appeased for our sin, we can have no greater priest than the Son of God robed in flesh. And that's the argument when it comes to the great high priest's person. And second, the location of his ministry makes him great as well. It says, our great high priest is passed into the heavens. Now, this refers primarily to the humanity of Christ, actually, because God is in the heavens. God is everywhere as he is God. But this refers to Christ's humanity. It's not enough for a great high priest to be God. He must be a man as well. And you remember, boys and girls, Jesus as God-man ascended into the third heaven 40 days after his resurrection. It's interesting. We just heard, uh, just this is providential, from 2 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul speaking about the entrance, the paradise of God, where he heard things that are unlawful to utter on earth. That's the location of the Son of God as God-man. You see that in uh, Acts 1.9. While they beheld, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And in the temple, the most holy place figured heaven. It was a picture of heaven. It was a type of heaven where the high priest of old would tremble to go. But Hebrews 9.24 says, and we'll get to it someday, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures or a representation of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God And these two little words that come after, to appear in the presence of God for us, for us, are so vital, friends, to remember. He entered heaven into the presence of God for us, constantly interceding for us, and that he willingly undertook this office for us, goes so unappreciated by us, beloved, by faith. You must know that there is a great ministry conducted in the heavens for every child of God. That day and night in heaven is Jesus, Son of God, interceding for your sake if you believe on him. How much greater would our assurance of salvation be if we would know such things? How much sooner would we return to the throne of grace for mercy? How much more adoration, joy, and praise would be found in our hearts to know the ministry of the Son of God in heaven? And how much more would we walk with the Lord out of gratitude for what he does for us? And it is fundamentally our lack of understanding of who our great high priest is that we rarely go to him. Knowing that God, the Son of God, God the Son, is our intercessor in heaven itself should induce us to go to him swiftly. For if our sins are against God, to know that God the Son is our advocate is incredible. For God is not divided, and God is not pit against himself. The will of the Son is the will of the Father. And as as the Son intercedes, you know that the Father receives that gladly. Truly, friends, His ministry is so superior to any mere human priest that there is no comparison at all. And so the question for the Hebrews and for us as well is why would we ever turn or return to any mere man to intercede for us on the earth? Why would we seek any priest or pope who claims intercessory power or any saint or angel when the Son of God himself has taken on the ministry of reconciliation? And on that point, 
this is a, a providential thing as we come into this text. I want to deal with the doctrine of, uh, which is a historic doctrine of the Pope as the Antichrist. In the 25th chapter of our Confession of Faith, chapter 6, it says, There is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ, nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof, but is that Antichrist, that man of sin and son of perdition, that exalted himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God. And one reason for this is the Pope takes on titles only Jesus can have. One of his titles, you might know this, one of the titles he steals is Pontifex Maximus. What is the Latin there? The greatest high priest. The greatest high priest. That is blasphemy of the highest order, friends. When the Bible has one who is called the great high priest, one only, and it's not Aaron, and it's not Francis, but it is Jesus Christ. And for the Pope to take that on is blasphemy when the Son of God has that title alone. And uh, boys and girls, as you might wrestle with that part of the confession, uh, the reason for this is anti and antichrist in the Greek means not just against Christ, but in the place of Christ as well. That's why in 2 Thessalonians 2.4, we read that antichrist is he who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. We find the Pope usurping the Son of God's title and prerogatives as Pontifex Maximus, sitting in the temple of God, which we know is the church, showing himself as though he is God. But only a crude imitation and usurpation of Jesus, the great high priest in heaven. A side note, Really, so you might know why our confession says that and why the reformers said no other figure in history is so daring as this. No other fi hi uh, figure in history has fit the bill as antichrist like the Pope of Rome. Even to this day, you think about this, you know, Rome is very subtle. 1.2 billion, 1.2 billion souls look to the Pope as the greatest high priest. The number of Protestants is far, far smaller than that. The number of Bible-believing Christians is far, far smaller than that. Friends, Rome, like the serpent, is more subtle, but she continues to grow while Protestantism right now is on the decline. She's just subtle like the serpent, so be aware that the Pope in Rome hasn't changed his ways, but is more subtle. Well, but to get to the point, and really the point is made with the Pope, why do we look to mere men on the earth? Why is it that man in his flesh looks to mere men? And note, you will, and I often do this, beloved. You don't have to be a papist. We often look to men, even if it is our pastor or our elders. We often do that. Or the mighty men of this world to do something for us instead of the Son of God. We do it, friends, because in order to believe that we have a great high priest in the heavens interceding for us with a throne of grace and mercy open to us day and night, we have to exercise faith. And our problem is we walk by sight more than we walk by faith. That's why it's so hard for us. You know, we don't really. I mean, when was the last time you thought on this? The day and night, every millisecond, whatever time is like, at every moment, Jesus Christ is interceding for me. You cannot see it with your eyes. You cannot hear him with your ears. But faith must testify for you that he is doing it. McShane said it so well, and this is such a precious quote, isn't it? And so many of you know it. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million of enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. 
When was the last time you embraced that truth, believer? And you've seen the beautiful pictures of our high priest praying. Is John 17 not a wonderful testimony of how we are on his heart in that high priestly prayer? What does he say? Father, keep them. Father, keep them from evil. Father, make them one as we are one. Sanctify them. Make them know the love that we share, that they would know that love themselves. This is the testimony of how Christ prays for us. And to know that he prays like that night and day, just as he said to Peter, Peter, I have prayed for thee that thy faith should not fail. Satan wants you, Peter, but I pray for you. And there is nothing Satan can do to conquer my prayers. What a great high priest you have, beloved. Are you drawn towards the Lord for help then in your time of need? When your sin causes you to drown spiritually, when temptations arise, do you know that the power of heaven is exercised by the Lord for, your, for, your, for you to give you grace and mercy in your time of need? Whenever you recognize that there is no one on earth to help, when did you last revel? That is, you look, there are no helpers on this earth, but the Son of God in heaven is interceding for me. And when you need repentance over sin, and you are too ashamed to go to God, which we talked about and touched on this morning, When did you last think that the Son of God is my advocate, no matter my sin, if I would humbly turn to him in repentance and faith? When you need strength to persevere in the face of opposition, whether from the world, the flesh, or the devil, would you think that the Son of God is there in the heavens to give you help, and that he is holding your name close to his heart in heaven's throne room? Not just once a year, but continually, even in your time of need, to go in your time of need. You know, the old high priest, he was rarely in God's presence when people needed his work. But the Son of God is. In your temptation, in your trials, in your terrors, when the law of God cuts your heart to convict you of sin, Jesus Christ is there pleading for you. And so, what is the use Our text says, in knowing this, that he is our great high priest, it says we must hold fast to our profession or our confession. What is the confession or profession that we are to hold fast to? Uh, Hebrews 3.1 revealed it earlier. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. We profess Jesus is the one sent by God with the message of God. We heard that in Hebrews 3. We profess that Jesus alone can save sinners from their sins. That without Jesus, we are undone without hope. We are to hold fast to this profession and be firm to hold it with all the powers of our soul. Never wavering, as we heard about John the Baptist this morning, never wavering when the world opposes us and calls us to deny Christ. And because Jesus, Son of God, great high priest, is in heaven and is interceding for us. We are strengthened and endure. You see, the use of this is to know that when I am tempted to, and the temptation is strong, when the gun is to my head to deny Christ, to say Caesar is Lord, or whatever it is, to say that um, uh, you must say Christian, you must deny that homosexuality is a sin, that you must embrace transvestitism or whatever it is that the world is going to exert all its force to you. And you are, especially boys and girls, tempted to, to, to walk away from a profession of Jesus, Son of God. He says we hold fast because the Son of God is interceding for us. 
And we are able to endure, not because we are strong, but because He is in heaven interceding for us. And that is what motivates us to hold fast our confession. Friends, and you must be, as the Hebrews were, publicly willing, publicly willing to make a confession of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Next week, God willing, we will have several come up before the congregation to do it publicly, confessing before God and man that their sole hope is in Jesus. The church has always been a confessing church, and the church has always been a publicly confessing church, confessing with Peter, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, confessing the trustworthy saying of 1 Timothy 1, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief, confessing before Caesar, Jesus is Lord. These are the public professions of faith Christians have made, and have caused them to come into conflict with the world. But that profession is not a singular once-and-done profession of faith. He says, hold on to it. You don't do it once in your life, but you have to hold on and put legs to your profession that Jesus Christ is Son of God. That means in every aspect of your life, your life has to profess, Jesus is Lord, and Jesus is my soul's Savior. And all the actions you commit, That is the profession of your faith. Never once denying Jesus is the Christ, the only way to the Father. Never once giving up on his holy law and his holy word. Again, boys and girls, the world is asking you more and more powerfully to give up on Jesus, to deny him or deny his claims over you or even over the world. You must hold fast your profession that Jesus, Son of God, is in heaven at God's right hand and ask for the grace to endure. When the troubles come, when the professor or the workplace or even your friends start to sneer at you and tell you you need to give up on Jesus, what you have to do is you need to go to the throne of grace immediately, straight away, knowing the Son of God is there to give you strength to endure. Our profession of faith, and let me encourage you in this, is always vindicated, friends. It's always vindicated. Because Jesus intercedes for us. Think on the original audience, right? Who's so, so much, so much from their own brethren in the flesh. So much uh, of their families and their institutions are telling them to deny Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And that's why the apostle has his heart for them. And he says in Hebrews 6, 9 though, But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you. He's persuaded that they will endure And so what I do believe, and you should believe too, is that the Hebrews did hold fast to their profession of faith. And think about this, how their steadfast profession was vindicated one day in the face of great adversity. Apostates said this, abandon Jesus and go back to the Levitical priests. But wasn't their profession vindicated in AD 70? When God tore down the temple, when Jesus Christ brought his judgment on Jerusalem and the Levitical priesthood and the temple once and for all was removed. And their faith in Jesus Christ and this profession of faith was vindicated. Take that as well as a token for you, child of God, that your profession of Jesus will be vindicated. Well, what this text also says is Jesus knows the strain you are under. And he invites you in that to go to him for mercy and grace. So we'll see that in the second head, which is a, feel, or a, a human priest. Verse four, uh, 15. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. 
And so verse 14 captured our attention with the divinity of Jesus as our great high priest. Verse 15 draws our attention to the humanity of Jesus as our great high priest. Do you know this, boys and girls? In the fullness of time, God uh, sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. And so what you need to understand is it's impossible for the Son of God to be our great high priest in divinity only. Two chapters ago you heard, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. Why? That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Hebrews 2.17 He had to be man to be our substitute in our nature and then to also intercede for us in our nature. Uh, Our text shows more light on that need, for our text says of Christ's humanity that we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. And in the Greek, you might notice it seems a little awkward. It's just as awkward in the Greek, really, in some ways, is there is this double negative, but it's there for emphasis sake, that you wouldn't read past it too quickly, that you would, in fact, stumble over it to grab our attention in its construction, that our high priest is touched with the feeling of our infirmities, friends. Something so profound that the apostle uses this ear-catching and eye-catching construction to rest us with the idea that the Son of God, in his humanity, feels our infirmity. And the King James does a wonderful job translating this, translating the Greek as touched with the feeling of our infirmities, rather than sympathize with our infirmities, as most translations do. Sympathize is not wrong, by the way. But the King James adds depth to the underlying Greek word, when it expands it to touched with the feeling. For the Greek word sympathy has the sense of feeling another's suffering. Feeling another's suffering. And so we have here a priest touched with the feeling of our infirmities. You remember in Isaiah 63.9, in all their afflictions, he was afflicted. And because Jesus has taken on our nature, there is pity and mercy in his heart for us, beloved. He knows our infirmities as men and women. You know, even putting sin aside for a moment, we keenly feel the limitations of our humanity, don't we? Limitations in endurance, limitations in wisdom, limitations in even heavenly-mindedness. Jesus knows also our soul's turmoil, right? He was without sin, and yet his soul was in turmoil as he felt the limits of the human soul. He knows what anguish is like, for he has grieved and he has mourned even over death. He knows what the hardness of our life is like under the curse. He knows the sweat of our brow. He knows that we tire and we grow weary so quickly. He knows the effect of sin on the human soul, though he never gave into it. He watched firsthand his own close disciples through his own human eyes. He watched them fall prey to it. And he is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Beloved, the Son of God was incarnated to have a fellow feeling for us. Our heavenly high priest knows our frame, Psalm 103, 14, for he knoweth our frame. He remembereth that we are dust. And he knows that keenly himself in his humanity. And that's what a priest must know in order to do his work effectively. You'll hear that in chapter 5. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Who can what? In verse 2. Who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. 
The priests were meant to have compassion when they saw sinners. This is a little bit different in chapter 5. I don't want to bring this into Jesus. But they had compassion on the people of God when they saw their friend because they were like them. And they know what it's like to struggle under the curse. And so we see this from chapter 5. He must have a relation to us in our nature to be our priest, to have compassion on us and our weakness. And unless you have the wrong idea, our text quickly adds, was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Right? He was tempted as, in all ways as us, but he never did sin. But he does, he does not know that infirmity, right, of having to, to uh, fall to sin. But he can sympathize with us when we are tempted, though he never sinned. You remember in Hebrews 2.18, I spoke of this months ago, it spoke of Christ's suffering temptation for us. He suffered temptation for us. He suffered the revulsion of it. He suffered the grotesqueness of it. He saw how the human soul is in some ways even inclined to it at times. He endured that in his weakness, right? He was, and what I mean by that is not that his soul had any affinity towards it. But when he was hunger, hungry in the wilderness, he could see how a man might be tempted to give up on God for some bread. He saw how that affects the human uh, mind and heart. And he endured that and knows that you being far weaker and tainted with sin need help. He is touched with the feeling of your infirmities. And you must know that when you come under the power of temptation or trials, It's so easy to ask the sinful question, God has no idea what this is like. Easy for God to say, keep the law now, isn't it? But he cannot suffer temptation like me. And so if you create that distance between you and your great high priest, you will not go to Christ for mercy and grace in time of need. But if you knew that he was touched with the feeling of your infirmities, would you not go to him constantly, child of God? That there is a feeling he has towards us. Now, this is an analogy, and it might be a dangerous analogy, so keep that in mind. I thought about our dog for a moment and my relation to him. You know, this is a mere animal. And when it suffers or is scared, right, as, as the godly man has a care for his beast, as the proverb says, I have pity on it when it is scared or frightened. I, I don't say to it, and, you know, unsanctified men would, come on, stupid dog, you know thunder will not hurt you. I feel merciful towards it. Exactly because it does not know that. It is limited compared to my knowledge. And I think then as well, when I think of the incarnation of God in the Son of God, uh, how much more sympathy though would I have if I experienced the dog's life? <laughs> to have the experience of the animal, to know firsthand, and I would say, oh, oh, poor thing. Thunder makes its heart flutter. Its ears are tormented by the sound in a way my human ears aren't. And it has no clue what that noise is. It is frightened because it is frightened to know what that thing is that is making that noise. What causes it? It doesn't know. And I realize that now. It never knows if this will be a continual experience or it will ever come to pass. And in a more profound way, Jesus, Son of God, God in the flesh, knows humanity's limits. And so he is touched with the feeling for you, believer. He cried out in soul trouble and needed help himself. You think of this. Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And then we often breeze past this. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Luke twenty-two forty-two through 44. 
Do you think Christ is unfeeling towards you, friends, or that he's forgotten that at one time he needed an angel to give him strength? That he once agonized so much that it was as though he was bleeding, uh, he was sweating blood. He was in agony in his human nature, beloved, and he knows what that is. And on the cross, he even died. And he experienced the very limit of humanity's power. Another man had to help him bear the cross. And so, yes, the truth of Psalm 103 is vindicated. He knows our frame, that it is as dust. So what's the use in knowing all this? To merely store that information in your mind to even marvel, which we should. We should give glory to God for the hypostatic union. But it's not just merely to store that info in your mind. The apostle intends for you to put spiritual feet to the doctrine and says in verse 16, let us therefore... See, having these truths, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The therefore tells you to apply this doctrine, friends, and how to do it, which is that these truths draw you or must draw you to heaven's throne, knowing heaven knows your frame. And not just that uh, heaven knows your frame, but is touched with the feeling of your infirmities. And I need to deal with this real briefly. It's not that Jesus suffers in heaven. I can only deal with that briefly. I might come back to it another time. Heaven has no sorrow, and Jesus will never suffer. But his union with us is so great, right? You've seen this in the Bible, in the book of Acts. He counts our sorrow and our trials as his very own. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? He asked Paul when he persecuted the church. Though he no longer suffers, friends, he counts your trials as his very own. That's astonishing. But that is the great union between us and our great high priest. Are these things not worthy of the greatest meditation for your soul, friends? And I I thought of this, right? There's so many ways that you could express this. And how cold and unfeeling we are towards Christ when he is full of feeling towards us. How little we think on him when he is constantly thinking on us, how little we seek him out when he is constantly drawing us to himself. Beloved, in knowing this, Jesus is beckoning you to boldly come unto the throne of grace. And isn't that so marvelous, right? All throughout the Bible, and this is not actually 100% true, but this is the impression we have of the Bible, that we often think of the throne of grace, uh, the throne of God as a throne of judgment. And here we see it is called a throne of grace to believers. Isn't that a marvelous thought? That the throne of God is a throne of grace to you who believe. We sang of that in Psalm 99, right? The Lord sitteth between the cherubim. This is why I say it's not entirely accurate to say that. That's the impression we have. The Lord sitteth between the cherubim. That is the mercy seat. And so heaven's throne is a throne of grace. And as Jesus, the Son of God, the great high priest, is passed into the heavens, that by his blood offered to God on the cross, the throne of God is a throne of grace because it is the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne, we hear in the Revelation. And so heaven's throne is a throne of grace, and he is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. And you are called in this text to boldly go to him if you are in Christ. Do you see that? What a thing it is, especially, right? You think of these, these, these believers who are so full of their Old Testament And to hear that God is saying, come boldly 
to the throne of grace when the high priests used to tremble to come into God's presence really would be earth-shattering to them. And they would not go past that word boldly so quickly as you and I do. Boldly, with confidence that Jesus Christ, Son of God, is for you. You come to him not fearing that God would smite you if your faith is in him. And to what end? To obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Mercy, that is, to find forgiveness for our sinfulness and breach of his law. Grace, to stand fast in temptation and persevere in affliction, persecution, and trial. Mercy and grace are two great needs, people of God, and they are freely available to those who would come to the throne of grace. And not yearly, but whenever you need it. It says, obtain mercy and find grace to help when? Two months from now on a particular date in the calendar? No. When? In time of need. Whenever. Whenever you need grace and mercy. 24-7, beloved. And I suppose our greatest fault is this, that we do not go in times of our great need. Beloved, as God has uh, ordained the end from the beginning, God has ordained the time when you will need his help. And he also invites you to come to him in that time of need. He knows whenever you have need and his throne of grace is open for you. So when you, need, when you sin and need forgiveness and repentance, you go there and find mercy and the forgiveness of sin, knowing that the heart of Jesus is full of pity and feeling for you. And when you need grace to stand in the evil day and to hold fast your profession of faith, when you need grace to stand in front of temptation, when the temptations seem to overwhelm your soul, go to the throne of grace. When temptation comes, how often do you go immediately to the throne of grace to obtain grace in your time of need? But Jesus Christ says, I am there for you all the time to give you strength. And he says, not only am I there for you, I know your frame and I am touched with the feeling of your infirmities. And boldly can be translated variously like confidence. Come with confidence. And so he invites you to honestly and sincerely pour out your heart to him at the throne of grace with assurance that he hears you, child of God, if you approach with humble faith in Christ. Hebrews 10.22 will tell us this. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Boldness, assurance of faith, you are called to come to God. So what is keeping you from the throne of grace? What has kept you? When was the last time you went to the throne of grace, beloved Christian? Let me say, it's not Jesus keeping you from the throne of grace. It's yourself. He has said often, I am willing to receive you, but you are not willing to come to me. Do you not have many needs that require both mercy and grace? So how often are you child of God? With all of your needs, you say you have so many needs, but how often are you in before heaven's throne? Train yourself, beloved, to increase your dependence on the Lord. No, he wants you at his throne, but you are not as willing to go as he is willing to receive you. In every possible way, Christ's humanity beckons you to the throne of grace, sympathetic to your plight. And God gave this Jesus to you, not begrudgingly, but wholeheartedly. What else does Romans 8 say? What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? What comes next? 
He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? So will you go to Christ more often? Will you put away self-reliance and pride? Will you go and put away your embarrassment, child of God, when you sin, knowing that Jesus beckons? Go to him when you need him. He is always available for you, child of God. And if you don't know this, Jesus, if you don't know him as your high priest, receive him by faith. The Bible says if you receive him by faith, then you are counted as the sons of God. And so, friend, if you don't know Christ, be saved by this great high priest and know that your sins are cleansed forevermore. For Jesus Christ, Son of God, intercedes for his people uh, as God in the flesh. Well, we'll have to leave Hebrews there for now. But do praise God for such a great high priest as this, who is in the heavens, touched by a feeling of our infirmities. We'll leave Hebrews there for now. We'll continue next time, Lord willing. Please rise, if able. And let us pray. Our Father and our God, truly what wonderful things are found in the word of God and how little we take and read. Oh, Father, we thank you for our great high priest. We thank you that you gave us one who is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would draw each and every soul here who is hearing the word preached to the throne of grace. How thankful we are we can come boldly to you even now, Father, that even now, Father, you receive us. And so we do pray, Father, that you would give us mercy, forgive our sins, and would you give us grace, especially for the week ahead, that you would give us grace to endure, and that we would not just come now in this hour, but we would come daily, multiple times a day, to the throne of grace. And we thank you, Father, that even when we're not praying, The Lord Jesus Christ is praying for those who are his. Oh, we remember the words of that man of God of old who said, God's thoughts towards us are many. Let not our thoughts of him be few. Help us not to have few thoughts of you, O God. Help us to have many thoughts, for we have many needs. Bless the preaching of the word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.